Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Garay, TJ Beater, and Kathy Garay. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts. Happy Friday and welcome to another awesome edition of Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Today we are making GMGP history with our first ever international guest. Well, across the pond guest. Well, that's true too. He's he's there as well. Because we've had Canadian guests. But this is international. They're international. This is my segment, Leave Me Alone. We are delighted to welcome our guest today, Charlie Blanning, who will be live from the UK. Charlie's the author of The Greyhound and the Hare, an extensively researched and richly illustrated book about the history of the greyhound breed. We'll be covering a wide variety of greyhound topics, including coursing, its contributions to the development of the breed, and how coursing greyhounds became racing greyhounds. Now, Tanya will not be joining us today. However, we will be joined by our resident guest host, John Parker, who is bringing his extensive knowledge and expertise on both coursing and racing greyhounds to our mix. But before we bring on John and our guest, Charlie Blanning, Rory, do you have anything more to say? No, not really. I think I'm just going to sit here, drink my Starbucks, and listen to the show. Okay. Well, you know what? We're turning it over to John Parker. Hello, and good morning uh, in the on the West Coast, and good afternoon in the East Coast. Good evening in the the UK. Well, I we are very happy to have you joining us today, John, because. Um, you are the man as far as all this information, and, and I think, you know, we need the experts rather than just Rory and I. Babbling. That, yeah, that's true. So, John, it's all yours. Thanks very much. I was just reflecting on uh, what we've brought to the, uh, you, you folks particularly have brought to the listeners as kind of a, a, a back-to-back, the two best writers on, on things Greyhound, Dennis McKeon last Friday and, and today, Charlie. Blanning, and so uh, without further ado, Charlie, welcome. Thank you very much, John. Uh, Kathy uh, mentioned a little bit about your background, but I wanted to flesh that out just a little bit. Uh, I've always said that the the British and the Irish greyhound folks do a great job of uh, creating multi-generational greyhound interests. So let's start off a little bit about your background and your, uh, your family's involvement in greyhounds. I'm the third generation because um, my grandfather started to own, train, and breed greyhounds in the 1920s, and uh, my father carried that forward, and um, then there's me. And um, as I understand it, your family um, was primarily coursing, but also bred greyhounds for the track as well. Well, we did, yes, because, of course, um, greyhound racing started um, big time in the United Kingdom in the 1920s, just at the time that my grandfather um, with his brother were getting involved with um, owning greyhounds. So they were happy to run dogs on the coursing field and also at the various race courses, which were you know, close to where they lived. 
how old were you when you first uh, started helping take care of the greyhounds and going to the coursing meetings in the track? Well, I I was very small, I can remember that. In, in fact, I think I was taken to the track first because, um, you know, uh, my, my father and my mother thought that probably that I would um, find that, how should I say, a, a bit more comfortable anyway. Um, you know, it was a good evening out, um, still is. And so I was taken to, we live near Bristol, which is a port city, which is still, you know, tremendously important today. And at the time, there were two greyhound tracks in Bristol. At one time, even in my grandfather's day, there had been three. And I was taken to a track called Knoll, where my father had runners. And um, I used to go frequently. Um, and I can always remember, you know, what fun it was. I mean, they were great evenings. And then when, it was, when I was thought to be old enough, um, old enough to stand uh, the cold and the wet... <laughs> and everything else that goes with a coursing meeting, um, then I was taken coursing as well. Um, did, you, did you have I a job suppose. at the coursing I, I meetings? Hmm? Did, did I have, you have a job? A, did you have a job at the coursing meetings? Uh, no, I'm, I mean, when I first went coursing, John, I would probably have been six or seven years old. Um, that sort of an age. So, a little um, small to handle a coursing greyhound, I imagine. I, I was a bit small. Blannings come small anyway, and so I was uh, <laughs> probably just just a little bit too small to hang on to a greyhound, which, we, of course, was um, just straining to be away and straining to run. But the years went on, and very soon, of course, um, I became um, you know big enough and strong enough to be a help to my father. And then, of course, um, I was expected to run after the dogs and, and, and catch them. Um, and see to them after they'd run, you know, rub them down, um, give them a drink, get them ready for their next course, and so on and so forth. And then as you went on into adulthood, you became a coursing correspondent, is that correct? Yes, yes, I was very lucky in that way, because um, my father had a great friend called Bert Edwards Clark, um, who was a very respected writer about um, greyhounds back in, um, well, he had been ever since the 1940s. Um, we're now talking about the uh, mid-1970s. And Bert wanted someone to take over from him. Um, he wrote for a magazine called The Field, which was a weekly magazine um, dealing with country life and country sports. And he wanted someone to take over from him as their coursing correspondent. And, you know, through, um, you know he met, um, I'd met him often in the past when I was a boy. And um, we all got together and Bert felt that it would be a good thing if I took over from him. Uh, sadly, just as um, all this, you know, you were arranging, trying to arrange this, um, he became very ill with liver cancer. And within a couple of months, he was dead. Um, he had also written for the Sporting Press, which is a weekly uh, greyhound racing and coursing newspaper published by the Irish Coursing Club. Um, so all of a sudden, um, the field didn't have a coursing correspondent, and nor did the uh, Sporting Press have a, a coursing correspondent in 
the United Kingdom. And I, I managed to succeed Bert Edwards Clark in both jobs. And I'm still writing for the sporting press to this day. Now you've written uh, or, or co-written a couple of other books. Uh, uh, tell us about that a little bit. Yes, I have. Um, back in the mid-1980s, um, we were about to celebrate the 150th year of the Waterloo Cup, which was the premier coursing event um, in, in, in the United Kingdom. And it was suggested by the National Coursing Club that um, a book should be published which detailed the history of the Waterloo Cup from when it started in 1837 up to the present day, which, of course, then was um, 1987. So um, I got together with a great friend of mine uh, called Sir Mark Prescott, and he and I together um, published a, a history of the Waterloo Cup up to and including 1987. Um, and it's been a much sought-after book um, in, in, in recent years because, of course, like all books of that kind, it was only printed in a limited edition. Um, so they've become, an, become very desirable as far as book collectors are concerned. And I also um, published a book called This Coursing Year, which I published with um, a, a, a photographer called Terry Thorne, um, who was the National Coursing Club's official photographer, and it detailed uh, coursing in the United Kingdom in one particular year. So it gave people um, a detailed grasp of just what happens in a coursing season right from the very beginning in September until the end of February. And then you became secretary of the National Coursing Club and keeper of the Greyhound Stud Book. Tell us about the duties and responsibilities of those positions. Yes, that was in 1988, and um, the principal um, function, of course, was the, the register, which was kept by the National Coursing Club, um, and which was published annually, annually as the Greyhound Stud Book. And we registered all the um, greyhounds which were bred in England, Wales, and Scotland, both for track racing and for coursing. So, as you can imagine, that was a, a, a pretty major task. But I was also expected to um, publish the annual Greyhound Stud Book, and I was also the secretary of the National Coursing Club, which governed all the coursing meetings in the United Kingdom, and also included me as um, compiling a book called The Coursing Calendar, which was published throughout the season and gave detailed results and reports of all the major meetings which took place. So it was a job which managed to combine, I suppose, being a registrar, a publisher, and a journalist. Um, so it was, it was great fun. I really enjoyed it. How long did you do that? Uh, for almost 20 years. I retired in 2007. Well, that brings us then, I think, to this superb new book that you've written, uh, The Greyhound and the Hare. And uh, for our listeners, uh, Charlie's appropriately modest about the book since he's its author, but, but I'm under no such obligation. So let me tell you a little bit about this book. 
Um, it's said that when you look into the eyes of a greyhound, you look back in time through the centuries. The greyhound and the hare puts that sentiment into words and pictures like nothing I've ever seen. It's without a doubt the most thoroughly researched, complete book on the history of the greyhound breed and coursing that's ever been written. And it's massive. It's 539 pages, contains hundreds of greyhound art reproductions and historical photos. It weighs, wait for it, eight pounds. Holy cow. <laughs> as, Charlie, as Charlie said, whatever you do, don't read it in the bath. <laughs> so in, uh, in my estimation, it, it really is of equal significance and importance to the book, Care of the Re- Racing and Retired Greyhound, which many of us greyhound lovers refer to as the Bible. And I really, if you only if you only have two books in your greyhound library, they should be the greyhound hair and the care and the, of the racing and retired greyhound. And we, I think we can refer to them now from now on as the book and the Bible. Uh, the book is available only through um, online through YPD Books, which is a UK site, and it can be found at www.ypdbooks.com, or you can go to the Greyhound and the Hare Facebook page that Charlie set up. And you can click on the Shop Now button. That'll take you right to the, to the book's listing at the uh, YPD site. The cost of the book is 60 British pounds, which is about $75 U.S., but believe me, it's absolutely worth it. There's only about uh, 200 copies of the original 1,000 copies printed. Is that, is that number current, Charlie? Yes, that's about right, I understand, John, yes. It's, 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 it's unlikely, Charlie tells me, that there will be a second printing. So I recommend you buy one now, because in a couple of years, they're going to be on eBay for a couple of hundred dollars. So it's well, uh, it's well worth the, uh, the money, believe me. So, Charlie, how did you come to write the book? Well, the National Coursing Club um, decided that they wanted a legacy project, which would... Um, Know, trace the history of, of, of the greyhound um, up to, you know, from earliest times right up to the present day. And as Sir Mark Prescott, um, who wrote the foreword to the book, says, he wanted um, a book written that if someone in a hundred years' time said, what was greyhound racing? What was greyhound coursing? That in this book would lie the answer and also that it will be a truthful answer as well. Um, so the National Coursing Club were determined that um, that book should be written and that book should be available. Um, so they financed the project. They asked me if I would compile it. Um, and there we were, and it was published last September. How did you um, conduct your research, and where did you get all this The marvelous greyhound art reproductions in historical photos? Well, I was very fortunate there because, um, you know, if I can refer to Sir Mark again, he had um, a very, very large collection of archive material which he had compiled, you know, throughout the, the years. Pictures and old trophies and even statues of greyhounds. Um, and I was able, of course, to make use of all his archive material. But the other thing which was, has, has been a, a great assistance is that as soon as 
coursing became a national sport in the United Kingdom, it's always been very carefully recorded. Um, in the 19th century, from the 1830s onwards, many newspapers and journals uh, recorded in tremendous detail exactly what happened at the meetings, the biographies of the dogs, the owners, and so on and so forth. And, of course, now, with Internet newspaper archives available at the touch of a button, as long as you're persistent in your research, um, you can find out the most extraordinary things. Um, and that was an enormous help to me. Um, without the Internet, I suspect it... We, I, I can't imagine, you know, sitting in various newspaper archives. Um, it would have been um, the work of years. Um, it was the work of years, but even more years than it took um, me to write it. So let's get right to the meat of the book, which is the history of the greyhound breed and the history of coursing, which is the sport that brought the greyhound down the centuries to us. Uh, first, let's talk about breed origins. You know, when I first adopted um, uh, a greyhound back in 1994, the, the popular adoption literature of the time characterized the, um, the greyhound as the dog of the pharaohs and had Middle Eastern uh, origins in Egypt and so forth. And uh, uh, the book, you summarize the current state of DNA research uh, into the origins of, of uh, dog breeds. So what, what's this latest research revealed about the origins of the greyhound breed? Well, what the DNA research has immediately discovered is that the greyhound actually has no genetic connection with what you might call, you know, the desert dogs, um, the Afghan, the Saluki, the pharaoh hound, um, but they are an entirely different genus of um, um, dog altogether, and that the greyhound bears a closer family tie to herding dogs, you know, like border collies, more than they would to an Afghan or a Saluki. Um, so the, the, the suspicion is that the dog, of course, as we know, um, or at least we're assured, emanated originally in China and then came... Um, westwards, but um, the, 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 the ancestors of the greyhound um, you know, came to northern Europe without ever calling in at Arabia. So um, it turns you know, the, common, the common myths about the origin of the greyhound completely on its head. DNA has been an amazing uh, 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 thing for it for all aspects of, you know, tracing origins, dog breeding, etc., hasn't it? Yes, it has. It's a marvelous tool. Now, uh, another an, another legend we always heard when uh, uh, in, in the earlier days of adoption was that the greyhound was the only breed mentioned in the Bible. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm no great expert on this one. But I'm told that actually it could just simply be down to a mistranslation. That actually, I, I'm, I am no expert on ancient Hebrew. But um, my reading at least tells me that it was just simply a loose translation. Um, and the, 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 the 
James Bible thought that Greyhound was as good a translation as anything. And so there it is. But it's no, I'm afraid, historical guarantee that um, the, the, the Greyhound as such, or even named as such, was known in the Middle East at that time. Then we come. Then we uh, we come to coursing. Um, tell us a little bit about the origins of coursing and how it came to be distinguished from hunting. Well, we are absolutely certain that um, by the second century BC, that there was coursing um, in northern Europe, very much along the the, the lines uh, um, as as it is right up to the present day. That. Um, uh, the, 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 the dogs themselves existed, and as far as we can tell from Roman mosaics of the period and pottery and so on and so forth, they were very much greyhounds as we know them today. And the descriptions of the actual sport itself um, show the Romans coursing and um, the Celts coursing because the, the Romans adopted um, the sport from the Celts, uh, very much, I mean, in, in the style of modern coursing. I mean, we're fortunate in having the, um, the, the, the work of um, the man who's normally known as Arian, which describes coursing in, in, in detail. And um, the way that the, 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 the sport is conducted is little different from way, the way that coursing is today. The only difference is that Arian describes um, the sport as being a contest between the dogs and the hares, um, and to which he rightly adds, and one is glad if the hare escapes. Whereas, of course, in modern times, it's become a contest primarily between the dogs. Uh, in the second century BC, right up, in fact, um, into the later Middle Ages, there's no evidence that coursing was competitive, um, that it was a sport which was enjoyed for its own sake. They weren't actually running one dog against another as it became in the uh, 16th century. Uh, you mentioned the hare, which, of course, is the the natural prey involved in coursing. Tell us a little bit about the hare and particularly how it's distinguished from the rabbit. The hare, um, which, which we know here in the United Kingdom, is the European brown hare, which curiously is not indigenous to Great Britain. Um, it was brought to Great Britain about the same time as um, the Roman invasion. No one can be quite sure, of course, who actually brought it. Did the Romans bring it, or did Celtic traders bring it? We have no, we have no knowledge. Um, but the, the, the suspicion is, of course, that the, the brown hair was brought for sporting purposes. The indigenous um, British hair is now known as the mountain hair because it only now... Um, occupies the higher ground um, in, 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 in England and Scotland. Um, but all the lowlands are um, peopled by the brown European hare. Um, it's, it's an analogous uh, situation to uh, when the grey squirrel 
was brought into um, Great Britain from America um, in the 19th century, uh, the first thing it did, of course, was to chase all the indigenous red squirrels um, out of their ancestral lands, and they also took place in remote areas, uh, mountains and forests, to get away from these aggressive and larger um, and unwelcome invaders from um, North America. Well, the brown hare and the indigenous British hare were just the same. The, 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 the poor little British hare took one look at the European hare and departed for the hills. <laughs> uh, and, and there they've remained ever since. Um, if, if you um, look at the Irish hare, which is different again, um, the Irish hare and the indigenous mountain hare of um, the United Kingdom are in fact much closer um, as relatives than they are to the brown European hare, which is the one which you find in the lowlands of the United Kingdom, and which is the hare which has always been coursed. It's bigger, it's stronger, and it's faster. And we think the Romans, or at least their contemporaries, brought it here. Well, I, Charlie, I have to say, this is absolutely fascinating. Of course, granted, you're breaking a couple of, you know, longstanding, I guess, greyhound myths as to their history. But it's good we know the truth um, as far as, you know, my, my black and white greyhound could be a border collie. <laughs> but um, I, right now, I'm ready to order the book during the break because it. It is truly, from what I've seen, it's just absolutely fascinating as far as, you know, the research, what you've had to say. Um, I'm in it for the artwork, i got to tell you. That, that is what truly interests me. And some of the photos you have posted have been just, you know, phenomenal. And, and a lot of your activity has also been on uh, the Greyhound page uh, on Facebook. And that's, you know, that's where I've been kind of tracking you for the last year or so. Um, but right now... Um, I'm going to have to let all the boys out of their crates because it's turnout time. <laughs> yes, it is, um, and we will be <laughs> we'll be back shortly with much, much more of Charlie Blanning, author of The Greyhound and the Hare, and our resident guest host John Parker, doing the interrogation. <laughs> so uh, all of our listeners can run out and uh, order the book. Or yeah, order the book right now. And Charlie, where again, real quick, can they order that book? It's available, it's available on the internet from YPD Books. YPD um, Books. YPD Books. Okay. YPD Books. All right. Or you can um, order it directly from the Greyhound and the Hare's Facebook page. Um, we have a, a shop now button on that. Oh, so excellent. That if you go on to Facebook and find the Greyhound and the Hare page, um, apart from being able to see all the various posts that I do on a weekly basis, you can just press that button, and that will take you direct to the ordering service of YPD Books. Excellent. And we'll be right back after these messages. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Join Chris Epting every week for The Moment. 
Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? <laughs> Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Engelhart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory, TJ, and Kathy. To find out more about the show and what we do, please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com. That's gmgp3 at yahoo.com. Now, back to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Welcome back to the second half of Greyhounds Make Great Pets. 
And we are going to continue with more of this just totally fascinating conversation we are having with our guest, Charlie Blanning, whose recently published book, The Greyhound and the Hare, is the new must-have for all greyhound aficionados. Now, if our listeners uh, have any questions that uh, they'd like to ask Charlie, our phone lines here at Voice America are open, and you are welcome to give us a call at 866 472 or 5788. And Rory and I are going to shut up now, which will be a miracle. And we're turning it back to our resident guest host, John Parker, and our guest, Charlie Blanning. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, Charlie, uh, one of the myths that's dogged coursing for years is, is that the, the coursing is cruel to the hares. Uh, tell us the truth about that. Well, I think the truth is, John, that... Um, as coursing has developed, and now as coursing is practiced in um, Ireland, is that there is no cruelty because, of course, the greyhounds are muzzled. And this allows you to have a sport where the, the hares are uh, not killed and therefore um, the cruelty issue no longer is relevant. But what you have to remember on the other side is that where, of course, there is coursing, the hair is cherished and conserved um, to make sure that the habitat which the hair requires um, is, 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 is guaranteed in modern farming, which is not a, sadly is not a friend to the hair. Um, I mean, hair numbers have fallen, for instance, in Great Britain um, over the past 150, 160 years. But the reason for that is the progress of industrialized farming. Um, hairs flourish when there is sufficient um, cover and fodder, and when, of course, they're not um, endangered by predators, be they human or, or animal. Um, so that what we found was that where hair coursing took place um, in the United Kingdom, and I think probably our listeners should, should, should know now that coursing was, um, in fact, banned by law in um, England and Wales in 2005 and had already been banned in Scotland um, in 2002. Um, but before the ban came in, where hares were concentrated in the largest numbers were in fact on the estates and farms where coursing took place. Now, m many people who are not you know, involved with country sports um, would find this a curious paradox, but it is true that um, the hare flourished um, where there was coursing. And what happened? What happened to them after the ban? After the 2005 ban, what happened to those hares that had been kept and preserved and and looked after? What happened to them? Um, they were shot because um, the hare is still seen as um, a pest as far as agriculture is concerned, and without the protection afforded 
to the hair by uh, people who are interested in coursing. Um, all too often on estates where um, previously they're being um, conserved um, so that you know the courting meetings could take place um, they, 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 they were shot as they were shot on other estates and farms as well and when we talk about hair shoots we're talking about say on a, a large um, farm in eastern eastern England um, they would shoot up to six to seven hundred hairs a day whereas at a normal day's coursing meeting, um, the number of hairs that would die, even with the dogs unmuzzled, would be no more than, say, um, nine or ten. And the coursing, National Coursing Club uh, kept uh, statistics on, on how many uh, hairs were killed over the course of the um, coursing season, vis-a-vis -vis the number of courses run. What was the percentage of times that the hair got away? Um, it will be nine, nine out of ten. Um, nine hairs um, out of ten hairs caused would escape scot-free. It's the great paradox, isn't it? The, the, the animal rights people who brought coursing to an end in England really don't know much about animals and the keeping and preserving no, no. of animals. Uh, and nor are they concerned. Um, one thing yeah. that um, I'm, sure, I'm sure that my American listeners would find difficult to understand is that the um, campaigns against country sports in the United Kingdom are driven much more by politics by, than by anything to do with concern with animal welfare. Um, country sports and their abolition has been a battleground between... Um, uh, mainly the Conservative and Labour parties um, for the last hundred years. Um, <laughs> curiously, if you like, class warfare was far more important to them than animal welfare. Hmm. Yes. Let's move, uh, let's fast forward a little bit through history and uh, move into the evolution of coursing in the, in the late 1700s and early 1800s. What are some of the things that, that happened then that affected the breed? Well, the major thing that happened um, was that um, the laws which concerned, you know, who could go coursing and who could own a greyhound were, were liberalized. Um, in 1831, um, a new game act was brought in, and um, this allowed people, by paying a, a simple fee for a license, to be able to go coursing to own a greyhound. And this coincided, of course, with the development of the railways. So that um, whereas coursing meetings um, from the late 1700s up to about you know, the 1830s have been very much local affairs, all of a sudden, of course, everyone had a way of getting around the country easily and quickly, both owners, <laughs> trainers, and dogs. And very quickly, you had... Um, the development of what was known as the open meeting, which were large numbers of dogs, sometimes almost you know, 200 dogs on a program, um, running for large prizes. And as the 1800s you know, progressed, at the same time, of course, the, um, the middle class in particular had much more disposable in income, 
and they could choose to spend it on things like country sports. And coursing was a major national sport, um, particularly from about 1850 onwards. And One of the... Um, go ahead. There were literally hundreds of people going coursing, and crowds at the Waterloo Cup, which was already the premier meeting of the season, could um, be an, an, an aggregate crowd over, over the three days, will be something in the region of 50 or 60,000 people. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So and one of the like things... Martin right. McGrath, hmm? Go ahead. like Master McGrath and Fullerton were national heroes. Yes. Uh, Master McGrath was the Irish greyhound that won the, uh, the first one, the first Irish greyhound to win the Waterloo Cup and that... Uh, you talk about at the beginning of the book in his audience to Queen Victoria, I believe. Yes, yes, it, it, it was. A, 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 I've always felt, in a way, almost the supreme moment of the breed. Um, Master McGrath uh, not only was not only the first Irish dog to win the Waterloo Cup; he won it three times, and it was after his th- third victory that his owner, Lord Lurgan, um, who was a, an, an, an Irish peer was invited by Queen Victoria to bring Master McGrath to Windsor Castle um, so that um, you know, he could be introduced to the Queen and the royal family. Um, it was an amazing moment. Um, one, of the, one of the things, one of the legends I think our listeners might be interesting, interested in and have heard about before was uh, uh, Lord Orford uh, and the, the Bulldog Cross legend. Tell us a little bit about that and your take on yeah. that. Yes, the Bulldog Cross. Well, um, it, it, it no doubt happened because Lord Orford was um, just experimented ceaselessly in, you know, in attempting to get the best greyhounds possible. Um, and it's always said, of course, that he used the famous Bulldog Cross. But whether it ever had any influence over the breed as the greyhound breed progressed, I very much doubt. Apart from anything else, um, it's rather like that you were breeding a racehorse. Um, and if you wanted to improve uh, the speed of, of your racehorse, I mean, would you then mate it to a cart horse? I mean, it just seems quite wrong, doesn't it? Um, yes. I suppose his lordship felt that because of the aggressive um, tendencies of the bulldog of the time, that it somehow might put courage or stamina into a greyhound. Um, but there is no evidence from the ped- pedigrees as they survive that, um, that the bulldog cross was ever any influence on the breed at all. Um, quite interesting, much later, um, around about the turn of the 20th century, um, a, a, a breeder called Mr. Dunn attempted to cross um, an Afghan with a greyhound and was even allowed to register the progeny in the greyhound stud book um, because he was a great breeder of the time and had considerable influence. And he ran, um, there was a dog called Baz, and he ran Baz in public. And of course, the result was predictable. Baz matched against purebred greyhounds was absolutely useless. So that was the end of that. Yes, indeed. The experiment then, of course, 
when uh, when they're failures, as they were doomed to be failures. Yes, yes. So sometimes now, it's uh, not worth re- reinventing the wheel. <laughs> Very true. I'm sorry, I didn't mean now, to interrupt. Go ahead, John. Oh, no, no problem. <laughs> the... Um, uh, let's talk now. Let's move across the pond, Charlie, uh, because a lot of people think that coursing was uh, uniquely and exclusively a, a British and an Irish sport, but there was coursing in America uh, in the 1800s, wasn't there? There was indeed, yes. Um, first of all, it was what we call open coursing, which is coursing where um, the hares live wild and free, and of course, as all you know, people in your country would know that in the, 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 the late 1800s, uh, jackrabbits in the mid- Midwest were an absolute plague. There were so many of them. And so, of course, to hold a coursing meeting wasn't very difficult if you were living in Kansas or Nebraska or South Dakota. Um, but what the American courses very quickly found was that, of course, because the, the planes just went on and on and on, courses went on and on and on, and the dogs simply became totally exhausted, and um, competitive coursing was very difficult. Well, while, while they were worrying about this, um, what was known as enclosed coursing was invented in the United Kingdom. And this concept, which was... Um, the coursing on an enclosed ground, like the middle of a race course, um, after hares, which had been actually brought to the ground and trained um, to run up up, up the, the, the coursing enclosure, um, was the answer to all their problems, because um, there were plenty of jackrabbits to be used for enclosed coursing, and that by enclosing the coursing grounds, um, in that way you could control how far the dogs ran, and that make, made um, uh, coursing competitions, which are all run on a knockout basis, um, like a tennis tournament. Um, it meant, you know, they could run the five or six courses that were required to, to run out a decent competition. And so, in the, um, particularly in the 1890s, enclosed coursing became enormously popular in the United States. Um, not only just in places where you know, the jackrabbits could be fi- found in huge numbers like Kansas and Nebraska, but even as um, an urban sport in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, they became enormously popular, you know, for a brief period, enormously popular spectator sports. Um, if you wanted something to do in San Francisco in the 1890s and the early 1900s on a Sunday afternoon, you went to uh, the Union Coursing Park. Very interesting. Now let's move to racing. Uh, mm. A lot of folks are of the impression that uh, greyhound racing started in the United States, but that's not true, is it? Tell us, tell us about the earliest attempt at greyhound racing. Well, the earliest attempt was at a place called um, Hendon in, in, in North London in 1876. Um, someone had managed to invent um, an artificial lure which ran up a, a, um, um, you know, a track, and they actually ran a race meeting behind it. It was only straight. It wasn't the oval that we're all used to seeing today. It was a straight course. Um, the hare ran all right, eventually.
essentially, um, like most hairs, it, uh, artificial lures, it, it had its um, had its weak had its weaknesses. But they did manage to run this one meeting, and but that was it. For no known reason, and I've never found uh, the answer in the press, um, that one meeting was the only meeting which was run. The, the whole project was forgotten. And so it waited until, of course, um, you know, the early 20th century when um, Owen Patrick Smith invented the artificial hair which would actually run round an oval track. And that is what, you know, started the, um, you know, the revolution in greyhound racing. And then how did the, um, how did the American, the development of the lure in America uh, uh, migrate over to England and become, and how did racing get started in England? <laughs> well, <laughs> it was taken by someone called Charlie Munn. Um, Charlie Munn was um, an entrepreneur in Florida, and he was an associate of O.P. Smith, um, who by that stage had progressed to Florida and um, constructed a track at Hialeah um, outside Miami. And um, Charlie said, well, I think I'm going to, um, you know, w would you mind if I, I, I tried to sell your idea to, to, to the Brits? And um, Mr. Smith said, yeah, you know, you go on. Um, and, you know, you can, you know, set it all up and they'll pay me a royalty, which was O.P. Smith's major business model. Um, what he always wanted was, rather than set up tracks himself, he wanted other people to set the tracks up, and they would use his marvelous invention and pay him a royalty for doing so. But poor old O.P., um, his problem was that um, that never quite worked out. Somehow he kept on getting involved in the tracks themselves. Um, but anyway, Charlie Munn, who was an extremely smooth socialite, took O.P. Smith's wonderful invention over to Great Britain, sold the idea to someone called Brigadier General Critchley, um, and they set up a track at Manchester in 1926. Uh, the problem with American greyhound racing always was, and I understand is, of course, regulation. Um, the English are much more liberal and always have been as far as gambling is concerned. So whereas the American entrepreneurs who are trying to set up tracks in the 1920s were always bedeviled by state gambling regulations um, and by local politicians, um, in England, that sort of thing never bothered anyone. So they had a free run. And after the first track was set up in 1926 in Manchester, um, Brigadier General Critchley then progressed to London. Um, he turned a redundant Olympic stadium at White City in Shepherd's Bush into a Greyhound track. And by the time they ran the first Greyhound derby there in um, September 1927, 100,000 people turned up to watch it. 100,000 wow. people. That's amazing. So, Charlie, as our time dwindles a little bit here, one, of, one subject I definitely want to cover is how coursing greyhounds became racing greyhounds. Tell us a little bit about the early days when some dogs ran in both sports. Well, they did. 
Um, and this was in, as in America. Let, let's take America as the example. Um, when Opie Smith got started in Emeryville in, um, on, you know, on the outskirts of San Francisco in, in 1920, and by the way, the first Greyhound meeting at Emeryville was run in May 1920. A lot of the, um, um, you know, the reports about it claim that it was in 1919. That is incorrect. It's the first meeting ever run with Opie Smith's hair was on May the 29th, 1920, at Emeryville, California. But, of course, the dogs that they used were the dogs which were being used for coursing in the Midwest um, or in California, because coursing was legal in California and very popular. So the great hero of the early track in America was a dog called Mission Boy, and he was by two Californian um, coursing greyhounds. Um, and that was the source of... Um, you know, the, the races for, first of all, at Emeryville, then at Tulsa, then at East St. Louis. I mean, every farmer in Kansas who had a greyhound and who was struggling to survive, you know, was happy to take his greyhound greyhound racing because you know, <laughs> they could see a small fortune to be made. Yes, I, I sometimes wish that we still had the combination of, of dogs that, uh, that did both. Um, Charlie, I have dozens, literally, of more questions to ask. Uh, I, I'd love to get back with you sometime about um, some of the great dogs, uh, the great greyhounds of history who have great stories to tell. So maybe we can do a show just devoted to that. Uh, that would be awesome. Yeah, I think we'll have to. I mean, I even you know, wanted to maybe get into, for those of us who are new or just adopting a new greyhound, how do we get into uh, coursing and all that? So I think we will definitely have to have them back some point in time. And now I just want to give a big uh, thank you to our engineer, Aaron, our producer, Tacey, our guest today, Charles Manning, and our guest host, John Parker. I want to thank all of you for listening, and we will be ruining at you all next week. Everyone, hug the hounds of the world. Ow! Thank you for listening this week to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Please join your hosts, Rory Goray, TJ Beater, and Kathy Goray for another edition of our program next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.